Well, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. What's, what, what? <laughs> Why is that funny? We are. We're working our way through it. I mean, that's a slow thing. And we're just taking it a phrase at a time. And I hope you guys are cool with that. You know, there's several ways to teach a book. And I've taught books many ways, a whole chapter at a time or big chunks at a time or whatever. But it'll speed up soon to come. There's just some real key foundational things here in the first few verses. And so we're just taking it phrase by phrase. It'll speed up, trust me. And you'll be probably telling me to slow down. But we're just taking it phrase by phrase because there's deep theological concepts behind every phrase that the writer of Hebrews is communicating here. So we're going to cover one more phrase that's found in verse 3 today. But let's start reading in verse 1 as we usually do until we get to our phrase that we'll cover today. It says in verse 1 of Hebrews 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to talk about the first part of that last sentence that we read, when he had made purification of sins. Let's ask the Lord to bless it. Lord, we thank you that we can open your word like this and that hundreds of us can gather here and study it. It's a privilege. This doesn't happen everywhere in the world. But Lord, we ask that um, the privilege would not spoil us. As so happens in our, our culture, we have a privilege and we get spoiled and we get jaded and all those things. We ask that that wouldn't happen with your word. So many of us here own all sorts of Bibles and yet around the world there's Christians that are circulating a single page around a whole village just devouring your living and active word. Lord, cause your word to become alive to us. Many of us have grown up as Christians and we're familiar with the stories and the concepts and we've just kind of settled right there. But we ask that you would further illuminate our understanding, Holy Spirit. That you would take us deeper into the truths of God. That you would enliven our hearts. That you would restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. That when we hear about you making purification of sins, it wouldn't be a, oh yeah, praise the Lord type of thing. But it would be what it really is. It would be wonderful and amazing and glorious and life-changing. So Lord, don't let us miss the potency of these truths that we're diving into. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us and take us in. I confess that I'm not sure how to communicate this truth. There's so many ways and I don't really know, Lord, what's going to be best for this morning. So we're trusting in you. We're trusting, Holy Spirit, in your ability to communicate the truths of God to us and to breathe life into us that we might further experience our Father in heaven. And don't let anybody that hasn't responded to the gospel yet miss it, Lord. Please, we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week, as you'll remember, we looked very carefully at the concept that Jesus is the sustainer of all things or the upholder of all things, or the fact that he holds all things together. We talked about what that means, that it doesn't mean just bearing up a weight. 
It means both bearing and caring toward a goal. He holds all of creation together, but he is moving all of creation toward his predetermined goal and plan. And he holds everything together with his powerful word from the atom to the way that the planets rotate in the universe to our daily lives. Jesus Christ is the one who holds all things together. And when we think about that fact and we ponder the enormity of that reality and how glorious it is and how big that makes him in our minds and in our hearts, how much it just magnifies who he is that he's holding all those things together in their delicate balance. So we think about that and then we start to consider our text today that follows right on the heels of that, the declaration that he has made purification of our sins. We should immediately be awestruck by the fact that the one who holds everything together is the same one that humbled himself to be born a baby. I mean, the thought should almost overwhelm us. It's unfathomable that the one who spoke everything into existence and who with that same word holds it all together was so concerned for you and I and his glory that he draped himself in humanity and was born a baby and suffered humiliation upon a cross. It's an overwhelming thought that he would do that. Ironside, a great Bible scholar and commentator said, what a marvelous suggestion of power there is in these words and how our thoughts of him are magnified as we realize who it was who stooped in grace to make purification of sins. As we realize who it was, because Jesus is separate from any other religious leader, right? <clears throat> he claimed absolute exclusivity, and he claimed total deity. In him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's not another man making religious claims. He's not an ascended teacher. He's not a prophet. He's not a great moralist. He's not a mystic. He is the sovereign Lord of all creation who came to save you. It's absolutely glorious, this thing that we know. And the author of Hebrews, in the opening verses here, has been endeavoring to show us Jesus in all his glory. Because remember the context we have here a group of people who are in danger of leaving their faith in Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is just wanting to remind him, them, of all that Christ is. He says in verse 2 that Jesus is the Son of God. Also in verse 2 that Jesus is a full and final revelation of God. Also in verse 2 that he's the heir of all things and the creator of all things. And in verse 3 he says that he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature, and that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And now, it's a further explanation or exposition of the glory and the excellency and the magnificence of Christ, and that he is also called the purifier of sins. 
It's a further explanation and exposition of how glorious and majestic he is that he is also the sacrifice. You see, this was a strange concept in the first century world because the Jews had previously considered anybody that hung on a cross to be cursed. And so when Jesus came and hung upon the cross, it was hard for them to make that religious and intellectual leap from curse to glory. And for the Greeks, the concept of such a sacrifice was foolishness to them. And for the commoner in that society, they saw nothing but shame and humiliation in the cross. It was hard in their cultural context, in their religious context, according to what they know, to see the glory and the excellence and the majesty in that. You see, that's why Christianity is like nothing else the world has ever seen. It's not a revamping or a retelling of some other old religious system. It is a completion and fulfillment of Judaism, which in Isaiah 53 always spoke of the one who would be pierced for our transgressions. Always spoke of the pre-existent Lamb of God, the suffering servant. I like what Charles Barkley, Charles Barkley. Gosh. Is he even a Christian? Maybe it's prophetic. Maybe he's going to become a Christian and write commentaries. Oh, boy. I like what William Barkley said. He said, the glory of God is not the glory of shattering power, but the glory of suffering love. The glory of God is not just the glory of shattering power, but the glory of suffering love. And what we see in this passage before us is Christ being presented as the high priest for the people. It was a concept that was familiar with the Hebrews throughout the Old Testament, and it's really the major theme in the book of Hebrews that Christ is our high priest. Now, we will unfold, or rather the scriptures will unfold for us, all the theological richness of what it means that Christ is our high priest in the chapters to come. The whole epistle is about it. But there are three specific aspects of this purification that we see in our text today. Number one, this purification was exclusive. Number two, it was a cleansing. And number three, it was finished. What does it mean that he made purification of sins? Well, number one, to help us understand it, we realize that it was exclusive, meaning that Jesus did it by himself, and he did it for himself. It was an exclusive sovereign act of God. Jesus did it by himself and for himself. The words in the text here, when he had made, or it could be translated having made, is a translation from a participle in the Greek in the middle voice. Forget about it. Let me just tell you what it means. It means this, that the one performing the action is either performing it upon himself or it is having an effect on himself or it is for himself. It's in the middle voice. He has made purification. It has something to do with him from the very syntax and grammar and language used here by the Holy Spirit. 
Thus, when the Son of God made purification of sins, he did so by himself, acting upon himself. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 18? He said, nobody is taking my life from me. I lay it down on my own volition. And I have the authority to not only lay it down, but to take it up again. So he was acting upon himself. He said, I am doing this. It was according to the Father's will. But haven't we discovered in the book of Hebrews in our study thus far, that Jesus is the active agent who carries out the will of the Father. It's exactly what we see. He says all throughout the Gospels, I do only what the Father tells me to do. I do only the Father's will. So according to the Father's will, but on the volition of Jesus Christ, he laid down his life. So it is by himself, this purification. It is acted upon himself, and it is for himself. He did it for himself. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this means that there was nobody else that could die for humanity. Understand that. The Bible makes an absolute claim of exclusivity. No one else in history even claims to have died for you. Most religious leaders expect you to die for them. Have you noticed that? What does Islam teach? Islam teaches that God is capricious, given to large mood swings, and that there is no guarantee of salvation. No guarantee of salvation. You say, but what if somebody becomes a martyr for their faith in Islam, then don't they get the 70 virgins? There is no guarantee. It's only their best bet in Islam. The God of Islam, who is not the God of the Bible, we are not talking about the same God. If you read the Quran, and I have, and you read the Bible, you will see that it is impossible for this to be the same entity. If you claim it's the same entity, you must believe in a schizophrenic bipolar God. The God of Islam says, if you want to be in glory, you need to die for me. And then I'll think about it. The God of the Bible says, if you want to be saved, I'll come die for you. And it's guaranteed. It's glorious. Only Christ was sinless and so only Christ could pay for the sins of others. That's why it's exclusive. There's never been anybody else in the history of the world who was sinless other than Christ. Anybody else that maybe would have died for somebody else would have first had to have paid for their own sins so they couldn't pay for somebody else's. Only Christ was sinless and so could die for the sins of somebody else. And only Christ satisfied the righteous requirement of God. He lived a sinless and perfect life because we're not able to. So only he is qualified to purify sins. It is an exclusive claim. No one else could ever even be a co-redeemer with Christ. If anybody ever asserts that there is a co-redeemer, it is impossible. Jesus alone accomplished the work of our salvation. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. He doesn't say we are the way. 
Singular. Him. There's no co-redeemer. Acts 4.12 says there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other name. Even the most exalted of other names have nothing to do with our redemption. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. You don't have to go through saints. You don't have to go through priests. You don't have to go through a mother. You don't have to go through anybody. There is one mediator between you and God, Jesus Christ. And in John 8, 24, Jesus says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, we are lost. Why? Because nobody else can save you. Nothing else can save you. Jesus makes that claim of exclusivity. Now I want to revisit this thought that I said previously. He did it for himself. You see, we are an ethnocentric, or rather I should say egocentric people better word. We are an egocentric people. The world revolves around us, doesn't it? Absolutely. World revolves around me. World revolves around you. How is it possible? I don't know. Both at the same time. We are completely egocentric as people. And we extrapolate that into our theology, into our Christianity, and it's an error. We begin to think that the only reason that Jesus Christ draped himself in humanity, died upon a cross, rose then from the dead, and ascended unto heaven was for us. No, it's for him. We benefit from that work. But the primary reason that God saves people is for his own purposes. Number one, for his own love and pleasure. Hebrews 12.2 says that we are to be fixing our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before Jesus Christ, he endured the cross. Yes, there is a component in our salvation that he loves us. And that we're valuable to him. And he came to save us. But it's not that we're so valuable that he did it strictly for us. It's according to his own character. And for his own love and his own joy and his own pleasure. He is more important than we are. Secondly, he did it for his own name and his own glory. I want us to see this unmistakably now as we relate it to how God connected with Israel in Ezekiel 36. Turn there, please. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Of course, 37 is very famous, the Valley of Dry Bones. And then 38 and 39, perhaps even more famous, the Magog Invasion. 
But 36 is really neat. The situation to set it up in Ezekiel 36 is that God is telling Israel something that he's told them many times. That he would bring them into a land, Canaan, Israel, and into a good place. And he would be with them and he would be their God. But if they forsook him, if they neglected him and his commandments, if they failed to observe, if they failed to follow, and they instead went after other gods and other ways and other means and prostituted themselves, is the language of the Bible, played the harlot, is the language of the Bible, with other gods, then God would punish them and remove them from the land. They would be punished. They would be judged. But on the heels of that negative promise, always came the following positive promise, that he would bring them back into the Lamb. That he would never fully forsake them. That they would be judged and experience difficulty for a time because of their obstinance. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. It's the same thing with you and I. Don't think that Israel is in some special situation. It's the same thing with you and I. Hebrews chapter 12, when we get there, we'll learn that very well. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. But then he always said, I will bring you back into the land. He would do something wonderful for them. And he would defeat whole nations and multitudes of nations on their behalf. But you see, the tendency in Israel is the tendency in us to become egocentric and for them, ethnocentric about the way that God treated them. Egocentric and for them, ethnocentric about the way that God treated them. And so God wanted them to know his motives. He wanted them to be very sure as to why he would do what he would do. Namely, restore them back to the land. And so we pick it up there in verse 21 where God explains. He says, I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, he's speaking to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among all the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Verse 24. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. We've seen that fulfillment in our lifetime and currently being fulfilled. Verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. Now here's the new covenant. Look, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Remember, we're talking about Jesus as a purifier of sins and this connects now. This is the covenant that he made with Israel, the new covenant also spoken in Jeremiah 31 that we're grafted into. You see, the covenant wasn't about us. It was about God's glory, and it was made with Israel, but the book of Romans says that we are grafted in by grace. We need to be very humble in our salvation. Grafted in by grace. 
Then, verse 25 again, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. New Testament equivalent? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Behold, if any man or woman is in Christ, they are a new creature. All things have passed away. All things have become brand new. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. For us, day of Pentecost. Salvation. The coming upon of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The process of sanctification is the New Testament wording. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. So you will be my people and I will be your God. How beautiful is that? It continues, verse 29. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness. Does that sound good to anybody? To be saved from all your uncleanness? Because don't you know we're unclean? To be saved from it? That's what Jesus did. I will save you from all your uncleanness. And I will call for the grain and multiply it. And I will not bring a famine on you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field that you may not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. God says that he will make your life fruitful. He did it for Israel literally and physically. And he'll do it for us literally and spiritually and physically. He'll make our lives fruitful when we follow him. Verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places will be rebuilt and the desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passed by. And they will say, this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden. Don't people say that about our lives? Our lives were just desolate and we were lost without Jesus Christ and some of us were so deep in sin, we were broken and breaking other people. And Jesus redeems us and restores us and renews us. Verse 36, Then the nations that are left round about will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and have planted that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. Isn't that glorious? You see, the purification of sins is exclusive and that it's accomplished by Jesus and it is for Jesus. And the modern church in America has forgotten oftentimes the latter part. That we are saved for his glory and thus we ought to live for his glory. Don't you know that you are no longer your own but you have been bought with a price, Corinthians says. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You see, we've extrapolated our ego-centeredness into our theology. 
It's not about us. It's about the glory of the king. And we're just servants of his. And what he did for his love and his purposes and his joy and his glory and his honor and his name, we benefit from. And for that, we ought to be incredibly humble and incredibly thankful and incredibly obedient and incredibly ready to serve. On his terms and not our own terms. Because I find that just about everybody in the church is willing to serve on their own terms. Everybody in the church is a servant according to their own terms. That's not really a servant. It's a servant, but it's a servant of self. You need to be willing to serve according to his terms. Now the second point about this purification is that it was a cleansing. It was a cleansing as it spoke of here. He said, I'll cleanse you from your iniquity, from your uncleanness, from your filthiness. And so by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross, we are made pure and clean. I don't know how to explain that other than with the words, we are made pure and clean. You know what it is for something to be dirty and you have to clean it. Why do you clean it? If it was okay for it to be dirty, you would just leave it dirty. But there are certain things that we have deemed must be clean for them to be useful and usable, for them to show forth the beauty for which they were made. In the same way, we needed to be cleaned and made pure. And it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are made clean, that we are made pure. The concept was given to Israel in Leviticus 16.10, where it says, for it is on the day of atonement, or rather for on this day of atonement, shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So the Lord established with Israel a certain day, the day of atonement once a year, when there would be certain sacrifices that were made that would cause Israel to be clean in the sight of the Lord for a time. It was not a removal of sins as we know removal. It was just a covering of sins. And that sacrifice had to be repeated year in and year out. But the concept that they were able to become clean before the Lord by sacrifice was introduced there in that text. That they were able to be clean before the Lord by sacrifice. It necessitated the understanding that they were dirty. You don't come to be cleaned unless you realize you're dirty. And so the Bible calls us sinners. Now understand what it means when it says that we're sinners. It's part of the core identity of who we are before we come to Jesus Christ. We are sinners, the Bible says. For example, there are certain things that I would use to describe myself. It's part of my core identity. It's who I am. I'm a preacher. It's who I am. I'm a surfer. It's part of who I am. Now, I play on occasion basketball, but I'm not a baller. It's, you, you, you couldn't use that to describe me. I do it on occasion but it's not a core part of my identity. It's not really, not, it's not part of who I am. Surfer, that's part of who I am. It's in my blood. Preacher, cannot stop this brother from preaching. Have you noticed? 
It's part of who I am. No, the Bible does not merely say that we have sinned or that we sometimes sin. It says that we are sinners. Core identity. Sinners. And as sinners, we need to be cleansed. And what happens in that cleansing is that we go from the core identity of sinner to the core identity of saint. That's what happens. Being identified as sinners, now being identified as saints, according to the work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Again, seeing these truths that are so necessary for us to understand being expounded to Israel. Isaiah chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. This is the Lord speaking. He says, Sons I have reared and brought up but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Can you hear, if it were possible, the amazement in the voice of God? He says, even an ox knows who owns it. Even a donkey knows which manger to eat from. But my people do not know and they don't understand. How are they more lost and more dense and more dull? Art thou dull, Jesus said to the disciples in the old King James? How are they so dense and dull and hard to be more obstinate than an ox and a donkey? You almost hear amazement in the voice of God if that were possible. So he says in verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, People weighed down with iniquity. Or as another translation puts it, I teach from the NASB, but as the NIV says, people loaded with guilt. Same idea, different words. Weighed down with iniquity. People loaded with guilt. Anybody ever felt that way? Offspring of evildoers. Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. The Lord's not mincing any words here. He's pretty much letting them have it. Verse 5. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. Here God gives them a very apt description of what sin does in our lives. He says, where will you guys be stricken again in your rebellion? He's trying to bring them to a place of waking up, of returning to him, to realize that it doesn't pay to walk away from him. Now this relates directly to our text in Hebrews because it is the same thing that the author of Hebrews is trying to do with his audience. He's going to tell them throughout the whole epistle, it doesn't pay to walk away from Jesus. And God is saying to Israel, it doesn't pay to go forth in rebellion. Look at you. 
Your head is wounded. Your heart is wounded. You're faint. You're full of open wounds and scars. Uncared for, unpressed, unbandaged. The results of sin in our lives. He says, your land is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation is overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard. Like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. You get how funny God is? A watchman's hut in a cucumber field. Someone trying to hide in a cucumber field. You ever seen a cucumber? It's little. Nine. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom, we'd be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Now, He's explaining to them, he's reminding them of the fact that they are wayward and that they're experiencing the results of their sins and that it's ridiculous in his sight. It's unbelievable in his sight. And now he's going to come after their sacrifices. Now remember, God is the one who instituted the sacrificial system. But the sacrificial system was something that needed to be done day in and day out. And so the people, like you and I, had a tendency to become religious. Time card spirituality. They would come to the temple and they would check in. And they make that sacrifice and they check out and they say, well, I did my duty and now I must be okay. It's the same way that many Christians view church. They just show up on a Sunday and they feel like they did their duty and wow, they must have really pleased God. Like God's up in heaven going, oh, oh, you came to church. Oh, thank you, Michael, Gabriel, look. Oh, he came to church. I'm so pleased that you came to church. Oh, brownie points, reward, reward. <laughs> it's not our God, is it? You see, the people like us, became very religious and something that was supposed to be very meaningful, the sacrifices. So God comes after those things. It says in verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says the Lord, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling in my courts? He says, you're doing it all wrong. I never asked you to be weird and religious like this. I sought to draw you into a meaningful love relationship by providing atonement through sacrifices for you that you might draw near and walk with me. And now you've walked away from me and you're relying upon the outer form instead of the inner reality. Verse 13, he says, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense, it's an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Wow. I mean, initially, it was to be a meaningful love relationship. God got Moses up on Mount Sinai and said, Okay, Moses, make a tabernacle. And we'll call it a tent of meeting. And it's there that I'll meet with my people. And whenever my people come, they're going to have to come by blood sacrifice because I'm holy and they're dirty. But I'll make a way to cleanse them because I love them. And for my glory, I'll make a way to cleanse them. And when they come, I'll meet with them. 
and it'll be glorious and it'll be wonderful and it will be fulfilling for them and it will be according to my plan and it will be a picture of the restoration of all creation. Now when Jesus came, it says in John chapter 1 that he tabernacled among us. Same word there, same concept. He tabernacled or dwelt, set up camp, moved into the neighborhood among us. He came to be among us and the idea was this is great. I will be their God and they will be my people. And whenever they gather, now the gathering wasn't the Old Testament temple. Now it's called ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, the gathering. And now whenever they gather, it will be an even deeper expression of that initial meaningful love relationship that I started with Israel. A deeper expression of it. Because now I will be a sacrifice once and for all. And I will once and for all tear the veil in the temple in two. And I will open a broad way into the presence of the Father who loves them. But you see, what the church does is the same thing that Israel did. We become religious and weird. And we make it about the external form instead of the inward reality. And it doesn't please God. He didn't die on the cross so that you could go to a church service. He didn't die on the cross so that you could give a couple bucks. He didn't die on the cross so you could sing a few songs. He died because it is a glory of God that he would entangle himself in relationship with fallen humanity. And then he says in verse 15, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I'm not going to listen to you. Your hands are covered with blood. Now look what he says in verse 16 as we turn the corner. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Don't go away. Come. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And the fulfillment of that is in the person of Jesus Christ. It is by him that we are cleansed. Humanity has come to find what God always knew, that we cannot ultimately cleanse ourselves. And yet the standard remains. And so Jesus came to meet the standard by living a perfect life. And so he could be the sinless sacrifice to pay the price for our sins that we might be made clean so that we can enter unhindered and unfettered into a meaningful love relationship with God. There's no other religion like this on the face of the earth, ladies and gentlemen. This is the greatest thing the world has ever heard. Christianity. This is the greatest thing the world has ever heard. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, concerning Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, it's not just that he cleanses us. It's not that he just washes the filth away. But then he ascribes to us, he imputes to us, he gives to us because we're in him, in relationship with him. He gives us his righteous standing. It's not that we're just cleansed and so made morally neutral. 
That would be cool. But we're cleansed and made holy by the person of Jesus Christ. You see, God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived my wicked life so that God could treat me forever as if I had lived Christ's perfect life. And so his perfect performance of righteousness is credited to our account. And we now stand clean before God, pure before God, righteous and holy before him. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if we say we have no sins, we're kidding ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now I know that in this lifetime, we sometimes still feel dirty. Am I the only one? We still feel dirty and impure and unclean and defiled. <clears throat> but we don't have faith in our feelings. We have faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ who has positionally made us clean and righteous and holy and pure in his eyes, who is practically daily working in our lives to cause the outward display of our lives to match that inward reality, who will one day finally save us from the presence of sin and all we will experience then is the fullness of his holiness. He has cleansed us from guilt, He's cleansed us from shame. He's cleansed us from defilement. He's cleansed us from condemnation. He's cleansed us from moral corruption, from the power of sin, and from the penalty of sin, and from the pollution of sin. In Jesus' name, you are clean. Amen. Now the final point, and it's a quick one, is that it was finished. It was finished, meaning there's nothing else that needs to be done for us to experience that cleansing of Jesus Christ other than to receive it, other than to come to him in faith and say, I want it. I recognize my dirtiness. I recognize that I don't just sin, but by definition, I'm a sinner. I realize that deficiency, and I understand that Jesus, you handled it upon the cross, so I'm asking you to give it to me. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins, to wash me, to cleanse me. I'm asking that what you did on the cross 2,000 years ago would be appropriated to my life today. That's all that needs to be done. There's nothing more that can be done. The very language that's used in the Greek, it's in the aorist tense when it says, he has made. It means that it's done, it's completed, it can't happen again. There's nothing the more that can be done. It is finished. That's why Jesus said in John 19.30, it is finished. Tetelestai, tetelestai, it is finished. It could also be translated paid in full. Handled, done, dealt with accomplished. And so 1 John 1.17 is able to say, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. 1 Peter 1.18-19 says, you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood 
as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. How serious was God about accomplishing our salvation? He didn't do it with anything that was perishable. He did it with the blood of his son. And so then Hebrews 7, 25 through 27 is able to say, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And that is what the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says to them, why would you think about abandoning your faith in Jesus Christ? He made purification of sins. Amen? Lord, thank you for that beautiful truth. What a wonderful thing you've created in our redemption, God. How glorious it is. And Lord, I just ask now that you'd help us. There's people in here whose hearts are immeasurably hard. But we read that promise in Ezekiel 36. You'll take that heart of stone and you'll replace it with a heart of flesh if they'll just return to you. Lord, help them. Those who have never called upon you to save them from their uncleanness, from the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from you, help them to call upon you. To just in their own heart say, okay, God, I need you. Okay, Jesus, I need a Savior, and you're the Savior. I need you, I need you, I need you. I have tried so hard to do life without you, and it's not happening. I need you to come and save me. Thank you that you will always hear that prayer, and you will save. And Lord, for those of us that have tasted of thy salvation, but have wandered from the wonder of it, Restore unto us the joy of thy salvation this morning. Bring us back into that place of awe and wonder and glory. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters here who, like myself, sometimes feel so weighed down with their own sin, their own filthiness, would you help us to, by faith, receive your cleansing? Would you help us to lay hold of it by faith that truly in your sight we have been made clean and that there is, therefore, now no condemnation? Help us, Lord. We're so external, we're so visual, we're so into the tangible that when we touch, see, and taste of sin, it really sticks with us. We need you to help us to get free from those sins that so easily entangle us. So we fix our eyes on you right now, Jesus, and on the mighty power of the cross. And we ask for a full experience of your cleansing, that you would flood us with waves of grace in this place that your grace and your love and your mercy would wash over your people, that you would break up fallow ground in our hearts, Lord, that you would quell rebellion in our hearts, that you would knock down walls that have been constructed there in our hearts. Lord, that those hurts and those bitternesses, that you would deal with those and that you would remove the barb that those are and that anger that boils under the surface. Wash it away with your mercy, Lord. Wash that unclean, unclean anger away with your love, Lord. And break once again the bonds of wickedness for us. Break the power of sin in our lives. 
We want to be free to obey, free to walk with you, free to know more of you. Help us in the places where we've gotten entangled. Help us, Lord. You're a deliverer. You're a warrior. Come and war over us. Come and rule and reign and save us, Lord. Prayer team is here to help you. And you're welcome to come and get on your face before the Lord this morning. Take communion. Celebrate the finished work of the cross.